This is a quick disclaimer. Although the wise investor is trying to educate people on personal finance, what we talk about on the show is not actually financial advice for your personal and unique situation. Before trying to do anything with your money, always consult a professional. Hey, this is Anthony. And I'm Sal. And you're listening to the Wise Investor Podcast, where we help Canadians become more financially literate one post at a time. This is what they did not teach you in school. So hello, hello, everyone that's listening. This is this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School. Today, we have a couple people on the podcast with me. We have the usual Mark Simone behind the camera right now. And a special guest, a friend of ours, Dagogo Ultrad from Australia, all the way from Australia. Dagogo, what, what time is it out there right now? It's uh, just about almost 4 a.m. 4 a.m. Thank you for being on. Dagogo runs a YouTube channel, a couple million subscribers on it, and we've been working with him. So it's about technology and He's doing a YouTube video right now on the coronavirus and a potential treatment for it. So yeah. he came on to kind of ask a couple questions because our special guest today, the rock star, Dr. Evans out of Queens University, uh, he's here today. Just a quick little bio on you. He's the chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases and a professor in the Department of Medicine over at Queens. Thank you for being on the show, sir. Appreciate well, Thank you. Uh, thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having me. I'm sure you were saying before that right now you are very sought after for uh, being a thought leader in this crisis or challenge that we're going with right now. How busy have you been over the last couple of months? Well, I would say the, the, the issue is, is that I just don't seem to have time much to sit down. I, uh, that's why I'm kind of actually happy to be with you guys today because I can sit down for a couple of minutes just running from meeting to meeting to meeting and uh, many teleconferences, I think... Uh, it's amazing how uh, a lot of uh, older people are discovering the miracles of uh, technology and uh, <laughs> Zoom conferences and uh, right. you know all those other things. So, just can you give the audience, people who don't know who you are, who don't know what a professor at Queens who specializes in this thing that's happening, epidemiology, infectious disease? Why don't you tell us a little bit what your day to day is when you know coronavirus is not widespread across the globe? Right. So first thing is, is that although I'm a professor of medicine at university, I'm, I'm actually a medical doctor and a medical specialist in infectious diseases. So I spend a considerable amount of my time seeing patients. Uh, but in addition to that, I do a lot of things that academic doctors do. I, I'm teaching. I, uh, I teach uh, students uh, in some classes, particularly in the medical school, and teach a lot of doctors who have graduated who are doing residencies. Um, uh, in places like the UK, they're called registrars and, uh, you know, at the bedside and taking care of patients. Um, and then I do research and I work with colleagues and do a lot of collaborative research. Some of it's basic science in infectious diseases, and microbiology. Some of it is 
um, more healthcare services type research, looking at you know how do we deliver healthcare and things like that. Um, and generally, uh, my day is spent up with a real myriad number of those kinds of activities and. All that's happened with what's going on now, though, is that uh, I seem to be focused on one thing and one thing in particular, uh, and that being uh, COVID-19, this uh, new disease uh, caused by a novel uh, virus called SARS-CoV-2. And so that's really taken up my time. I guess I, the one thing I would say before and moving on to questions, though, so one of my roles is medical director of infection prevention and control at my hospital. We're a, a 500 odd uh, academic um, health sciences center. And so our day-to-day work in that is, you know, doing things to protect patients in hospital to make sure there aren't transmissions of infections going on. And as you can imagine, this COVID-19 thing has just completely taken over the universe of infection prevention and control, uh, both in the public health sphere as well as in the hospitals. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Everybody, you know, it started off as, oh, this, you know, virus out of China, it's not going to be a big deal. And then in the matter of two months, it's become a global phenomenon right now. Like never in my lifetime have I seen something like this. Well, um, I, I, I've been an ID doc for 30 years, and so I was around when SARS hit, and SARS was limited. Uh, mm-hmm. We were around when pandemic flu hit, and again, that was a, short, a relatively shorter thing, and people, of course, knew about it so and knew about flu. Uh, and then we were scared with Ebola emerging back in 2012, 2013, but I'll tell you, yeah, this is unprecedented. Um, I think for a lot of your listeners, this is this may be the one and only time they may face this, and let's hope that that's the case because it's such a huge problem. I, 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 everything that I'm hearing, yeah, we'll touch upon that. So, what, before we even dive into some of the more complicated questions, why don't you tell us in your words, you know, what's COVID nineteen, and why is this one so different than the other ones that you mentioned, uh, and why is it taken being taken way more seriously? Right. So COVID-19 actually is the term, which is a short form for coronavirus infectious disease of 2019. Um, and, it, and it's a word to describe the infection, the, the disease itself. How does it appear in, in people and, and what does it cause when it infects a human? The virus, as I mentioned before, is SARS-CoV-2. Um, and that's the thing that causes COVID-19. So COVID-19 um, is a you know readily transmissible respiratory infection, uh, which um, has really uh, gathered steam. Um, I think even before people were able to really get on top of the idea that this was as readily transmissible as it was, so um, it's therefore tended to defy kind of the usual uh, measures we would put into place. And of course, as everyone knows, we're we're now. Uh, really in bringing in massive social distancing measures worldwide uh, in an attempt to control it. So but why is this different than another infectious disease or the common flu? Well, it's a completely new virus. So what it means is that when you have a new virus like this, the entire population of the globe, which is now about 7 billion people, are all susceptible to this infection. And when we talk about other viruses like influenza, for instance, at least a small portion of the population may be immune to it. So its ability to sort of readily transmit in that population um, is, is different. And so this one is readily transmissible. And, and I think the thing that probably scares a lot of people and has certainly made it a serious issue is we know that it appears that uh, maybe about 2% or so of people um, die from this and get serious, serious illness. And although that's not as high as what we see with 
or what we saw with SARS or with MERS, which are other coronaviruses, um, with the, the world population at risk, if, if everyone were to be infected, 2% of 7 billion is still a pretty large number. And I think that's the scary part that people uh, really um, are worried about, and it's why we take it so seriously. So, so this, this 2% that people are saying, or 3%, is that is that higher or lower than the flu? Uh, it's it's higher than the yeah. flu. So the acceptable uh, what we call case fatality rate for uh, influenza is about zero point one percent. And if this one is one percent or two percent, you're looking at ten to twenty times uh, more deadly than influenza. And why do you think all these different numbers are being thrown around out there? Because if I talk to one person, they throw out different numbers. You watch CNN, it's something different than what you see on Twitter. Yeah. So it, it's a matter of math. So when we talk about the case fatality rate at present, we're actually talking about something called the symptomatic case fatality rate. So in other words, the denominator in determining that rate is the total number of people that we've identified that are symptomatic and are tested positive. And then we, as the numerator, we use the number of deaths. So when you do that calculation, it it sort of pops up as a... um, uh, a number. So the problem though, though, is we're not sure that's the right denominator. There is emerging evidence and some suspicion on the basis of some groups that that um, the actual denominator may be substantially higher. In other words, the number of people who are actually infected could be significantly higher than the number that we have recorded. So right now, you know, if, if I'm online on Worldometer, it's 270,000 um, uh, odd infections that have been identified, but maybe maybe there's a lot more people in that. Maybe ten times that number of people actually are infected, but we don't know about them because they haven't gone to medical attention. They haven't been tested. They're not symptomatic. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, then the actual incident case fatality rate could be ten times lower. Right. So right. that's where the confusion lies. And then I'll just add that China. We had a lot of data out of China. Some very unique things have happened. Uh, Italy is very unique. It's a country where the disease, I think, unfortunately, because there was not a lot of screening or testing being done, suddenly jumped up. And the demographics of a country like Italy are actually different than um, other countries in Asia. I found out that, in fact, Italy is a country with a a heavy skew of the population that's older. And we know that older people suffer from this disease. And so... In an older population like Italy, that means we're seeing, you know, what look like higher case fatality rates than we saw in China. Yeah, you hear a lot of this going around, and I'm, I'm glad to have someone on that we can set a couple of the things straight. So um, we'll ask you a couple questions about how, because we're all mainly from Canada, except for Dagogo in Australia, our cousin country. How do you think we have been reacting here in Canada? Has it been too retroactive are we are we really uh, proactive right now How, or is there are we doing the right thing uh, i think we're doing control, I think, but. yeah i think we're doing the right thing and i think we're clearly in the proactive phase um but it took us a little bit of pushing to get there i think we were like a lot of countries um maybe not as bad as some where there was a tendency to kind of try and see if we could downplay it a little bit. And I think those are influenced in my own personal opinion by political and economic forces that really didn't want to see this develop into a big problem or at least put it off. But right now Canada's in the right spot. Um, I think we've taken good affirmative broad action across the country and we've done it. Fortunately, we're quite fortunate in having done it before or ahead of the curve 
that's occurred in a lot of other places like Spain or Italy, Iran, etc. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with where we are now, but that certainly required a lot of pushing. You did. That That sounds very good, optimistic and hopeful that not a lot of people have right now. So that's great. Um, so uh, just for the people that are listening, they're going to want to know what's the best case scenario and what's the worst case scenario? Because everyone always goes to the worst case scenario first, yeah. but uh, especially some of my doctor friends that work in hospitals, you know, they're posting on their Instagrams and stuff like that. Um, what are, what is the best and worst case scenarios here? So I, I would, I, I would do it by mentioning countries. Worst case scenario, no question right now in my mind is Italy. Uh, Italy, uh, large, large numbers of patients, um, seriously uh, ill patients, overwhelming healthcare resources, uh, doctors and healthcare workers having to make decisions about who can get treatment and who can't. Um, so that's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario actually are a couple of good examples from Asia. And that would be Singapore for sure. Singapore was right on top of this, but then it's a little place. But South Korea and Japan have both done a very admirable job in flattening out that curve uh, and introducing appropriate measures. And in a way, I think we may look in retrospect and say China probably panned out to be the best case scenario too. But then that's a very different country. I mean, you can lock down places in China because of the way the system works, the way the regime works. Um, and so that's a little different. But I think South Korea, Japan, uh, Singapore, which are a little bit more typical kind of Western-like democracies are nice examples of best case scenario. What, what, made it so, what made it so that those countries that you mentioned, South Korea, Japan, Singapore, uh, they had such success? And can you describe that whole uh, flattening out the curve thing for our audience? Yeah, so um, uh, flattening out the curve is, is really taking uh, a, an epidemiological curve, which sort of shows the number of cases over time uh, where the area under the curve, I'm talking math here, the area under the curve represents the total burden of disease uh, in a country. And if you squish that peak of that curve down so it's flattened, um, then you get it below a threshold that your healthcare system is able to uh, deal with, which is a sort of flat line uh, that parallels the x-axis. The problem so with flattening the curve don't get overrun, right? So hospitals don't get overrun. Exactly, and and really the the issue there is that when you flatten out the curve, then the other problem you produce though is you produce a longer time frame. But that's mm. good. You'd like to spread the number of total cases you're going to get, which the area under the curve of those two curves is the same, but it's a lot longer period of time that doesn't overcome your sort of threshold. So really what South Korea, Japan, and Singapore did is they flattened out that curve. Um, they dramatically reduced transmission um, in their countries uh, so that the, the system could handle um, the input of these uh, ill individuals and were able to provide care for them. And that, that really was uh, the example. And what we also know the secret there was they did it early. And doing it early is hugely important. Italy, unfortunately, has shown us is that if you already are right into it and then you put those measures into place, you have a less dramatic impact. Right. I'm just going to jump in here just quickly because you did talk about flattening that curve. Um, and that kind of relates to the kind of um, idea of social distancing. And I guess in Canada, you guys have shut down a lot of things and um, it's, it's looking good, like you guys are taking some precautions. But here in Australia, we haven't really gotten to that stage. People are still kind of out and about. So maybe you can kind of highlight for our audience what social distancing is and um, 
why some governments have acted to um, implement that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so social distancing is really a term which is applied to a, a number of different actions that are taken by public health officials and, and authorities to stop or slow down the spread of a highly contagious disease. And this is a nice example of that. Some of them involve uh, reaching out to the public and asking them to do things um, uh, on a voluntary basis. Um, and then some of them are actual uh, directives and edicts which can, be, which can have the authority of law to, for instance, close schools, universities, uh, gatherings to reduce commerce, to shut certain kinds of social gathering places like uh, bars and restaurants, etc. And it can include even small scale and even large scale quarantine. So, you know, quarantining an entire city. So it's a large spectrum of actions uh, that can be done. But essentially, the concept is to, to prevent a lot of gatherings of people together where transmission can occur. And if we do that, we slow the transmission rate so the curve flattens down. There's transmission going on, but it's at a much slower rate and pace, and it's over a longer period of time. So that's essentially what social distancing does. And, and I, I, would, I, I always like to cite the example, which is you can find easily, which is back in 1918, pandemic flu, 100 years ago. Um, cities in the United States, some did it early and some did it late. And, uh, you know, the two great best ones to look at are like uh, Philadelphia, New York. And um, New York did it early, Philadelphia did it late. And the effect, if you look at the epi epidemic curves for those two cities is dramatic. There's a flattened curve in New York and there's non-flattened curve in Philadelphia because Philadelphia did it too late to have an effect, whereas New York brought it in early. I feel like social distancing is a uh, just like a a mass a mass saying in order to tell people to just stay away from each other. But it's it's not a, it's not a it's not a new uh, word, right? It, this concept of social distancing is an old practice, right? That's absolutely right. Yeah, but but you know, I guess nowadays we're we're really understanding this, and so I think. Uh, this is going to be something that stays in the lexicon for uh, a number of decades now. I think people are going to understand now really what it means and what its impact is in these uh, these types of scenarios. Um, I think, yeah, like maybe, you know, the next time something like this does happen, if it does, people will know exactly what to do next time. So, yeah, um, I'd like to move on to the next question. So what would you say um, the biggest myth you'd like to debunk for our audience, so one or two big myths about the SARS COVID-19. Um, yeah, I, I, I could have a field day with the mythology. Um, I mean, I'm on Twitter and I, and I see some of the stuff that kind of goes around. However, I have a Twitter bubble, which is mainly other ID doctors, epidemiologists, and scientists, and, um, and medical doctors. But having said that, two big myths. Number one myth is that this is really just an old people disease. And if I'm a young person, I don't have to worry about it. We know that young people, um, and there have been case reports of even children, can suffer serious problems with this infection and can die. So, you know, the idea that if you're, you know, 20, 30, uh, you got nothing to worry about, it's probably going to be mild. Yeah, probability-wise, it's likely to be mild in you, an 80% plus chance. But, but actually, young people die. It's not just old people, but certainly picks on old people. Myth number two, I think, is just the range of all these conspiracy theories are out there. So whenever something like this emerges, everybody wants a, well, why did it happen? And of course, the answer is, is that this is, we know this happens. This is a, what we call a zoonosis. This is probably a virus that was in animals. 
it adapted itself and was able to go on to infect humans. This one panned out to be pretty darn successful at infecting humans so that it could be passed on in there. But as you guys know, and we, might, we want to talk about it, we're happy to, there's all kinds of theories about, oh, it was a bioweapon that went crazy. Yeah, what, are, what, what do you say to people when people must have some kind of logic chain in order to come to a conclusion that that is the case? But what do you say to people when they come up with those, especially the bio-warfare thing? Yeah. So, well, unfortunately, it, it kind of fits into some paradigms and, and even uh, little thought bubbles that, that people have always had, which is that uh, if I can't explain it, it must be something mysterious like I've seen in a movie or I've read in a novel. Um, mm. And of course, I have to tell you, of course, and you guys know this, I, I'm sure, that the, the one lab in China, which is uh, what we call a level four laboratory, in other words, it handles the most deadly of pathogens, is actually in Wuhan, China. And so this was perfect for the conspiracy theorists. They were like, well, that lab's there and that's where it started. So they must be linked. And of course, I think, I really honestly, that's serendipity. Um, so yeah, so the other myth is that there's something um, uh, mysteriously uh, bad about this and somebody must be trying to wipe out the world's population or something. So that's my, that's myth number two, I think that. that I love that perspective. <laughs> If if it was a bioweapon from China, wasn't uh, very smart releasing it on their people, I guess. But, um, yeah, <laughs> so it doesn't really make sense. But um, you did touch on uh, the myth of young people thinking they're kind of invincible. I was hearing that there were some studies done in China of people that did recover, and they had something like um, some some of them, a small percentage, did have some lasting lung scarring. So, like I think twenty percent less uh, lung capacity. Um, would you like to comment on that? Some people are saying it's just temporary. Same thing happened in SARS and it goes away or yeah, just uh, comment your opinion. Yeah, that's a great question. And of course you really kind of answered it, which is certainly in the immediate period post um, infection where we are evaluating people and seeing some of this. And the question is, is this, is this something that's going to last or is it going to disappear? And I'll, I'll tell you as a physician who deals with, you know, uh, infection, infectious diseases and looking at sequelae, a lot of those those kinds of things that follow afterwards actually tend to disappear. So I think at this point, uh, at you know we're we're just in late March here, trying to say that that's going to be a permanent issue. I think is a bit premature. And really, for the next few years, as we follow out people who've had the infection and compare people who had a mild infection to people who had a serious infection, we're going to learn a little bit more about whether this actually had some unintended consequences like ser serious lung damage or serious heart damage or something. Because right now it's just really too early to say if that's the case. Right, right. Um, so on that vein, how can people stay safe? What's What's the... What's the best thing that people can do? Well, um, I would say uh, at this point, and and you know, taking my experience here in Canada, but I, I would I would hope people in Australia do the same thing. Social distancing hugely important. Uh, you know, if you can work from home, work from home. Um, you know, don't go to large gatherings where there'd be you know close mingling together um, because that that seems to be an invitation for this virus to readily do its thing and transmit from person to person. Do all of those things that you know we've kind of preached for years during flu season. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Um, cough into your sleeve or into a, a Kleenex, which you can throw out afterwards. You know, all of those sort of I guess I almost call them common sense things that everybody should do that you know, sometimes we don't think about doing. So those are the things I think people can do to protect themselves. I think listen to, listen to experts um, 
and listen to, to politicians and public figures who use experts to make their decisions. And don't listen to conspiracy theorists. Don't listen to politicians and leaders who say they're following the scientists but aren't following the scientists. Um, and all names. those things are going to do you in good stead. Not to name any names. I would <laughs> never want to name any I'm I am a doctor and a scientist. I don't do that. <laughs> um, okay. how about, how about, sorry to jump in real quick. How about the whole wearing a mask? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Oh, yeah. So w if you're, well, wearing a mask, totally useless. Hmm. You're probably wearing it incorrectly. A lot of the masks that are out there, we actually know that there's now a counterfeit mask business out there, which I found out the other day and I was like, really? It doesn't surprise <laughs> me. But so fraud, fraudsters are already out there with fake labeling of a mask. But masks on a well person don't work because you're not wearing them properly. Your chance if you're outside and for instance and everything is the, 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 the dilutional effect of the atmosphere and the air around you is, does a much better job than a mask. And we have to, we have to, preserve masks for healthcare workers um, to use when they're caring for these people so that they're safe and they can feel confident that taking care of a patient isn't going to cause them harm. Um, and then ultimately, actually, the best place that a mask should be worn if it's public is actually on a sick person because it reduces the aerosol spray that comes out of them, which, you know, may carry the infectious viral particles. So for a general member of the public wandering around or at work, wearing a mask, really not useful. Uh, the one thing, there was a, a, an interesting discussion, I have to finish reading it, was there is apparently a significant cultural difference between the East and the West when it comes to the whole habit or the whole cachet of wearing a mask. It's not a common thing in, in Western society, but it appears to be fairly common in Asia. It is, it is. Uh, well, I want to be cognizant of your time here. We're just going to go for another 10, 12 minutes. Is that all right? Sure. No, not a problem. Yeah, that's great. Been great so far. Thank I, you. Okay. I just have uh, one question that I, I, I'm pretty excited about and do want to ask you about. Um, so you may have heard, but uh, what do you think of the, the drugs hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine or remdesivir to treat um, COVID-19? There's, uh, there's been quite a few studies from... I guess starting in China, um, they, they did 10, over 10 hospitals um, with pretty good results. A few early ones in the uh, United States, Italy, and, and yeah, it's looking, looking kind of promising. I know it has side effects, but I'm just, just interested to know what, what your thoughts are on those medications. Yeah, my Twitter handle might give, give it away. Uh, it's at skeptical ID doc. Um, but essentially, yeah, the, the problem with this is very early data. Let me talk about remdesivir first, which is not a licensed compound, but has been developed and is in clinical trials. It seems to be the one that shows the most favorable signal in terms of improving uh, very seriously ill patients who are administered the drug. So um, I think, and I know that it's expanding into larger clinical trials in the West. And uh, the company that makes it is making it accessible, certainly to physicians here in Canada who are going to be caring for these patients. And so we're going to get some little bit more robust numbers and data uh, coming out in the next little while. The, the issue with other things like hydroxychloroquine, the use of an HIV drug uh, called Kaletra or Lopinavir, Ritonavir, it's a mixture, um, and even the use of an antibiotic called azithromycin, that's a little bit more um, tough to decide whether or not we're actually seeing a, a good signal of effectiveness. Um, and the reason for that is that most of those have been in open label use. In other words, a physician's just decided, I got nothing to lose here. I'm just going to give it to the patient. And maybe that patient would have improved anyways. So we really need trials that look at comparators of similar patients 
who did get it and didn't get it. And of course, in this kind of era, designing a trial that's ethically right can be challenging. So I guess I am optimistically hopeful that hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, which is a relatively cheap generic drug, um, uh, with or without uh, something like uh, zithromycin, a, a relatively inexpensive generic antibiotic, which surprisingly seems to have some sort of effect, which is probably not antiviral, but anti-inflammatory. Um, and then ultimately uh, this uh, Kaletra drug um, that, that at least, you know, if we can gather enough data, they may work. And the key for uh, people like myself my colleagues in intensive critical care and my internal medicine colleagues who care for hospitalized patients is who's the right person to use it in and when should we use it? And those are big unanswered questions that we may not really have the answers to until this has really gone into its later phase, but I'm cautiously optimistic. How's that? I probably should have started with that. It would have <laughs> prevented me all these other words from flying out. Yeah. Um, I, I just got one little note and I'll pass it back to Anthony, but um, you were talking about how, uh, it's important to have a trial where you have um, people that don't have it and people that do have it and um, see the difference. There was a there was an experiment done um, a few days ago, actually, in the United States that showed, um, I think it was 96% of, they, there was a double trial going at the same time, or two, two cohorts of patients. And one group received hydroxychloroquine with something else and the others were just control. And it showed um, after six days, 96% of the people that did have the drug were um, tested negative and then the 90% of people that didn't have the drug still tested negative after the same time period. So um, one early study, but you know, we'll see what happens. I think it's, it's. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the only thing I'd say that is one of the things that I'm a physician, I care of patients. So I really want to see survival and clinical improvement. And, and what that study did was looked at what's called a surrogate endpoint, which is the recovery of virus. So there may be something magical about a hydroxychloroquine, how it's working, the mechanism we yet got to sort of sort out. I suspect it has something to do with um, viral uh, inclusions and lysosomes and things, but um it's the recovery of the virus because that's a, we think that's a good surrogate marker. In other words, if you're sick and I get rid of your viral shedding fast, maybe that means you're going to get better. But I just, you know, always remind people that sometimes surrogates are not good markers of what the real outcome is. And my real outcome of, of what I care about is did my patient survive? Did they get off a ventilator uh, earlier? Did they not suffer uh, too, a too severe an illness? So those are the ones that we're looking for. Those are the clinical outcomes. But yeah, I, uh, I would say uh, encouraging to see those kinds of um, effects uh, virologically. I guess one more question is, do you think that, yes, in, in normal, I guess, say in quotes, peacetime, you, you would have to wait a bit longer, but this is kind of like an emergency and we kind of have to throw everything that we can. Um, what kind of... What's your opinion on that kind of wartime strategy against this uh, this virus? Yeah. So, you know, again, going back to that thing about this is like, in, I've been an ID doctor for 30 years, and this is the first time I've seen something like this. There's no question to go over that that's exactly where people are going and where we're at. Uh, our team here at our hospital, working uh, with some of my colleagues at other hospitals across Canada, I mean, we've developed guidances and protocols to use these drugs, even though there isn't, uh, you know, that great firm evidence we want there. And I guess my argument wasn't just to wait until that is that happens for that exact reason, but just recognize that as we go along, we're going to be 
pulling that data, looking at the data and finding out if this is the right strategy. And frankly, yeah, that's the way we have to go. I think we got to pull out all the stops and do what we can to, to try and save people's lives and, and, and keep people well. Yep. That's uh, that's excellent. Thanks for that. Okay. Just last couple of questions here is uh, I actually studied kinesiology and my specialty was in epidemiology and university, but I was like a science grad turned into a business person entrepreneur. And there's actually a lot of carryover between the statistics of epidemiology and finance and investing. Okay. Yeah. How, how do you um, kind of strike that balance between, you know, trying to, trying to work and keeping safe, I think is what he was trying to say. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a that's a huge challenge for the public. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I guess, I, I, you know, you are talking to a doctor and not a, a financial expert or whatever else. But, uh, you know, the, the, I think that really, for me, is the really, really um, core of what this has done to our society in general. This is a major societal disruption. And I think, um, you know, we need to uh, put into place uh, safeguards and safety nets that allow people to do the right thing by their health while at the same time, you know, not completely sacrificing, um, you know, things that they've achieved within their own lives economically, et cetera. So, yeah, it's a, it's a huge, huge issue. And, and, you know, I know here in Canada, there are active plans to ensure that, um, Income is, uh, you know, income risk is being um, reduced, uh, making sure that people have the wherewithal to maintain um, uh, whatever things they're dealing with in their lives, whether it be a mortgage or a rent or whatever else. And that's dramatically important because we have to not make people have to make what could be a life and death decision between do I do what's right and try and avoid being infected and flat, help flatten the curve or do I you know, have to really get out there and work and put myself potentially at risk, depending on the job you have. Um, and uh, because I, you know, I'm going to lose what I, what I've developed in terms of my own uh, economics, et cetera. So that it's a great question. It's a toughie. And um, this is where we need really the, the help of our, our social scientists, certainly um, the leadership uh, in a country. And I think we have to look at major, major, uh, you know, imposition of temporary structures to help support people so that they don't feel like they're floundering. One of the problems we face in this and any other situation like this is this, the unknown, the fear of the unknown. So right now, a lot of the fear of the unknown is with the infection and the virus. The other fear of the unknown is this has never happened before. What am I going to do? Am I going to lose my house? Am I going to lose, you know, members of my family? Is this going to affect, you know, my future uh, economic outlook and where am I going to retire and stuff? And so you don't want to give people too many unknowns to have to deal with. That's what my psychology colleagues tell me is that when you do that, people's brains uh, devolve down to that lizard brain, the fight or flight brain. And that brain doesn't work too well in those circumstances. And as you know, what we're doing with this podcast and what I've spent considerable time in the last few months doing is trying to make people use their neocortical function, the stuff that overrides that sort of instinctual response that exists so that they can kind of relax and calm down and try and look at this in a, in a reasoned logical measured fashion and and really guys that's that's the crux of this whole thing i love it thank you thanks for the save there guys for taking that up um okay rapid fire some questions that i got from our following i asked them what kind of questions they want to ask you so i'm going to ask you a couple of those 
One is, uh, why is Canada's infectious disease lab in Winnipeg instead of like, somewhere else? Do, do I have to tell you the secret inside information? Or? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's someone that thought that. Well, first of all, uh, actually, the National Microbiology Lab always was, uh, I, uh, it was in Ottawa, actually, uh, um, in Tunney's Pasture, which is a government sort of uh, area facility. And then there was this decision when they built NML, which is our level four lab in Canada, where do you put it? And I have to tell you, my read on this from, you know, overhearing conversations and stuff and, you know, things was that it, it kind of mounted down to a bit of a political decision. It was a it was a place that needed something like that. Uh, it's great that it's there. It's in the middle of the country, so <laughs> geographically kind of in the middle of the country, so it's not a bad thing. But I think there was a mixture of some politics and some, um, what do you call it, lobbying by certain groups uh, that may or may not have been in the province of Manitoba that sort of pushed that. Got it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we got a lot of dog lovers. Can dogs and pets get COVID-19? Uh, no. Uh, what they what you can do, though, is I think if you're an owner uh, and you get COVID-19, your poor dog or cat can carry the virus and you can detect it when you do a, a swab of your pet. Um, but it does not appear at the moment that those particular mammals seem to suffer a disease. And you don't catch it from your pet. You kind of give it to your pet. Got it. And can like a pet carry it to other people and transmit the disease? Uh, we don't know that, but I'm going to suggest that that's probably unlikely, but that's my opinion and I don't have the science to back it up, but I would say no, I don't think so. Fair enough. Uh, if you get it, can you get it again? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, that, that's a really famous question. It, it pops up because there have been some things where uh, they've followed somebody who ha is infected and then they find a negative swab and then they say, okay, well, that's great. And then a couple of days later, somebody says, well, let's swab them again and make sure they're still negative. And now the test is positive. That's not a reinfection. That's because that negative test you did suffered from a sampling error and or a testing error or an assay error or whatever else that happened at that point. Um, so what we know about coronaviruses and what seems to be the case with this as a typical coronavirus is that if you get it, you will probably develop immunity that may go on anywhere from one to three years, maybe longer, we don't know. But you, once you had it, the chance of you getting it again in the immediate future, like a reinfection, I think is virtually zero. And how long do you think this is going to go for? There's no way of knowing, but is, this yeah. gonna, is it ever going to get back to normal? Is this going to be something that's always lingering? We'll get back to normal. But uh, I guess uh, the optimist would say 12 weeks and the pessimist would say 24 weeks. And both of them could back it up with some reasoned uh, epidemiologic uh, arguments and some observations of what we've been seeing so far. So uh, here in Canada, I would say if everything goes great and things settle down, um, we may be looking at a return to some degree of normalcy by the summertime, by July, August. If you're a pessimist, that's not going to happen until the midfall. Um, I just have one quick question uh, to, to butt in here. Um, have you, is there any evidence of, I guess, different viral strains or one strain being more potent than the other or anything like that? Or is it all the same? Yes. So, uh, well, it, no, it's a great question. There's definitely different haplotypes of this virus that have circulated around. Uh, you're probably referring to a paper that was published now a couple of weeks ago, um, got out about the idea that there was an S and an L type. The S was the uh, progenitor type. It was the, the ancestral form and the L1 was a, a, an evolved form. But evidence that the S form seemed to be less 
virulent in the L form. I have to tell you that suffers from a whole kind of bunch of, of bias because the way the researchers developed it was actually based on the on a sort of an idea of what they were comparing what looked like different patients. So this virus mutates like most viruses do. The mutational frequency as I see it and have seen in papers doesn't appear to be greater than it is with other coronaviruses. Maybe we're going to find out more. But right now, yes, different types exist. Whether those different types confer different diseases is still up in the air. Um, and, uh, you know, there's so many other confounders that came into place that may have influenced why the mortality rate was very high in Wuhan early on and then diminished and then has been much less outside of, uh, of Hubei province in China um, and now is higher in, in Italy, for instance. But I think there's so many things that could be explanations for that that I don't think at the moment I'm jumping to the idea that there's different types that cause uh, different rates of uh, mortality or serious disease. Okay. Yep. And last question is, um, before we let you go here, how can we prepare for the next one? Mm. Like, will this happen again? Is it, have we learned our lesson this time? So I was around in 2003 when that exact question was asked about SARS. Huh. Uh, so uh, I, think, I think this one has been the real one, right? So SARS scared us, made do us a lot of things with public health. Pandemic flu said, oh, yeah, we were smart to do what we did after SARS. Uh, but then after pandemic flu 2009, people went, well, you know, it really wasn't all that bad. So maybe we've overinvested. I think this one is going to teach us that, you know, if you're going to get yourself properly prepared for the next one, and there will be a next one, um, you need to invest and make sure you have infrastructure in your country that deals with public health, that allows to uh, you to respond quickly, vigorously, and completely in the face of a threat like this. So when we come out of this, and we will come out of it, um, and we're all, a lot of us, most of us are still going to be here, the fact of the matter is we've got to, um, you know, we've got to learn our lessons again. Uh, and uh, politicians and the population who elect those politicians need to look at the issue of making sure that this is really a number one priority for countries to have your public health infrastructure and your medical infrastructure in place so that you can deal with this. Beautiful. Thank you. Excellent. Dr. Evans, I want to thank you tremendously for being on today and answering all these questions so, you know, factually and with good humor. Uh, I hope the best for you and we'll definitely let you know when this uh, podcast releases. So well, you can give and, a look. all right, Anthony, thank you very much for having me. Uh, um, I hope I hope I've helped to uh, help to, um, uh, you know, teach people a little bit about this and, and uh, they can learn. There's lots more to learn. And uh, I just I can't thank you enough for uh, having me uh, on to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. You guys have a great day. Thank you. Right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Good luck. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. for tuning in to this week's episode hope you enjoyed it be sure to follow us on instagram at the wise investor until next time this is what they did not teach you in school we hope to see you soon